0: Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Nawn. I'd like to welcome you to this program. My guest is on board now, so we'll go over and say hello to Ralph Nader. Nice to have you with us today. Thank you, Gary. For those who may not be familiar with Ralph Nader, he is quite simply one of the most influential Americans during the past, I would say, 40 years. He is chiefly responsible for many of the most important bills and the last bills and acts that really provided the type of consumer protection that we all really benefit from. But those same bills and laws have been on an onslaught of attack by corporate interest who look for short-term profits in the free market deregulation, in other words, unregulated capitalism. Just a few things. Landmark acts from Ralph Nader included freedom of information the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Product Safety Act, mine health, whistleblower protection, pension protection, wholesome foods, auto and traffic safety, and all told, I have at least 123 that I was able to determine, more than any human being in the history of our American Congress. Between 19, uh, might have been earlier, but at least what I found, 1965 to 1976, that 11-year uh, period, he passed more or caused to be passed more legislation protecting us than any person in the history of the American Congress. And he wasn't a member of Congress. He was an advocate. He is a graduate of Princeton and Harvard Universities. He's been a presidential candidate five, uh, through five elections. And he keeps building his platform on consumer rights, humanitarian and civil rights efforts, environmental sanity, and democratic government. His most recent book is a departure from the kind of books and writings of which, there, and by the way, there are many, that we have come to expect from him. His new one's called Only the Super Rich Can Save Us. It's a kind of fictional thought experiment, a what-if into the possibilities of what he calls a practical utopia. Now, with that in mind, there are two things I would like to begin by asking, uh, asking you, Ralph, and if you could take us on a... Uh, A whole mind thought. I'm not going to interrupt you. You're the master of this. So lead us in this of a thought experiment into what if the super rich wanted to band together to save democracy and to save Main Street. And in that context, I'm talking about the following just so we're all clear on this right now. Over 95% of the bailout, the first stimulus package and the second stimulus package, has been geared towards helping the major corporations, including Wall Street and not Main Street. We still have a higher unemployment rate. We have many foreclosures every day. It's over 7,000. Virtually none of their major needs. We have 49.1 million Americans without adequate food each day, including 12 million children. We have 100 million Americans who would now fall into that underemployed, unemployed, poor grouping. And we don't talk about poverty and hunger in America. It's as if it's out of bounds. And yet we focus all of our energy and all of our support and all of our, our reckoning to help people who are causing the problem. So the question is, what if one day the heads of all these major corporations and that the, the major policyholders in those corporations and stockholders got together and said, you know, we don't need all the money we have. Uh, why don't we help correct the problems in America that we are part of? Could you take us on that journey now and show us how that might play out?
1: Yeah, sure, Gary. Uh- it plays out an experience of many people in this country who have struggled to advance justice in their neighborhood, community, city hall, the corporations on the hill. Uh, when uh, they don't achieve that justice, they say to themselves, oh, gosh, you know, if, if we only had more media to get our message across, if we only had more organizers, if we only had more money, uh, and, and uh, the mismatch between the struggles of regular people. Uh, to make ends meet, to advance health and safety, to bequeath the country to their descendants worthy of their efforts, the mismatch between the ordinary people and the big corporations and their political allies in Washington is gigantic. It's like a tiny hill uh, next to Mount Everest. And so I uh, wrote this uh, practical utopian work of fiction, uh, which all takes place in 2006, led by Warren Buffett in fictional role and people like Ted Turner, George Soros, Yoko Ono, Bill Cosby, Phil Donahue, um, uh, Bernie Rapaport, uh, Max Pilevsky, uh, Gino Pellucci, uh, William Gates, Sr., and others. What would happen if, if they were brought together, uh, as they were in this uh, fictional work, uh, and decided they were going to put billions of dollars, smart strategies, persistence, uh, lightning-fast strategies, mobilizing people all over the country at the grassroots community level and in every congressional district uh, to uh, put the people back in charge, uh, to alleviate their deprivations, uh, shift power, and give workers their just desserts, which are, you know, workers today, millions and millions of them are underpaid and overcharged. So I wrote this uh In a very narrative form, Leslie Stahl read it of 60 Minutes on Her Vacation and wrote me a nice letter saying she found it engrossing, creative, and funny. And I said I'll take all three because that's what it's going to take for people to immerse themselves in this book. They can learn a lot about how to challenge and deconstruct power, uh, how to build people power, uh, how to develop strategies and tactics. Uh, It's really very instructive. I hope it will be used in... uh, Government courses in college and in uh, high schools, so they get together January um, in Maui on top of a hotel, uh, in, in a, a mountain top hotel. Uh, these 17 super rich convened by Warren Buffett, and they start the strategy. And uh, in February and March, each of them goes out and does their own uh, thing uh, to advance justice, which gets a lot of uh, mass media, of course. And, of course, they buy a lot of mass media, and they have their own mass media of uh, networks of radio and TV stations, because one of the 17 is Barry Diller, who, of course, is very prominent in radio and and, and TV uh, activities and investments. So uh, the important thing is to elevate our imaginations uh, to envision real possibilities uh, for our country many of them long overdue, many of them already established for many years in Western Europe dealing with health care, living wage, pensions, uh, decent public transit, um, paid vacations for all people, all this they have in Western Europe, including tuition-free uh, university education. And they got it right after uh, they were destroyed by World War II, and they rose out of the ashes and. They had higher expectation levels, and we didn't. We came out of World War II number one in the world, and we didn't have these expectation levels. So that's what starts. If we don't have the imagination, we don't have the reach. If we don't have the reach as a people, we don't have the grasp, and we will just uh, uh, observe our beloved country uh, decay and, de- and decline with huge, hollowed-out communities where our U.S. corporations have shipped whole industries and jobs to communist and fascist regimes uh, like, uh, like China. Uh, so uh, I don't want to give away how it uh, transpires in the narrative. It's a, it's a dramatic uh, power confrontation, power collision with the big corporations who organize their own special group of CEOs uh, because they can't, uh, they can't rely on the ordinary trade associations and lobbies in Washington because this tidal wave of organized, persistent, informed uh, people power is heading their way. Uh, I think uh, people who read this book, uh, Gary, will uh, come out stronger as a citizen. They'll have a higher morale as a citizen. They'll have an interesting read. uh, And uh, they won't be as inhibited evermore from asking rich people in their community to contribute to social justice causes. Now, I want to make clear, this is not... A normal philanthropy. We're talking about uh, these 17 put their uh, elbow to the to the wheel. They go public right away individually, and they use all their influence for, because they're successful in businesses. They have great contact, great Rolodexes, and and, and they know how to motivate people, uh, and they know how to hire the best organizers in one community after another. They have 400 full-time recruiters uh, going through hundreds of thousands of resumes to give you an idea of what the scale uh, of this uh, effort is in this book. Now, even after they spend $15 billion, that's less than one-third of of, uh, uh, Warren Buffett's fortune. So while we're talking big money by comparison, uh, the money is there. There are many billionaires in the advanced stage, they get a different perspective, a few of them at least, and they start wanting to leave something behind. They don't want to leave their country in a declining state, which 81% of Americans in a poll last year said they believed was the case. And uh, they want to look at their grandchildren in the eye. Now, most super rich people in their 70s, 80s, 90s Uh, Don't think this way. Obviously, they're into leisure, uh, relaxation, checking on their investments, playing golf, having long lunches, uh, touring around the world. But we shouldn't stereotype them all that way. And there are some in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who have some precedent in their past where they fought for a good cause and took on power, not just gave to charity, took on power and held it accountable. And that's what I build on in this book, which uh, in a way is an answer to Ayn Rand's books, uh, which are much longer, by the way, and smaller print. So that's roughly the story. Uh, It's uh, been given uh, a write-up in The New Yorker, in Associated Press, uh, Publishers Weekly. I've been to 22 cities. And I hope that it'll lead to some small conferences of very rich people, in various regions in the country, uh, together with citizen action groups uh, who have been fighting these good fights for many years, but with virtually no budget. And uh, things will start to click. You know, Congresswoman Slaughter, who is the chair of the Powerful House Rules Committee of New York, has put in a bill, Gary, which is of great interest to you. It's a bill to prohibit uh, putting antibiotics in animal feed. Uh, which, of course, uh, end up in people's bodies and increase the resistance of the bacteria so that eventually people come down, as they have increasingly, with infections for which there are no uh, drugs that can counteract them because of the mutations of the bacteria. So she wants to prohibit that uh, so that animals only get antibiotics when they're sick, not in their regular uh, feed. Well, you know, there's, there's no money to try to get this bill through. It's being opposed by the meat and poultry industry. And now, let's say some multibillionaire took a liking to this and said he's going to put $5 bucks to organize the country and congressional districts on this. You know what? It would very likely get through, just like a billion dollars organizing congressional districts and the country from the grassroots up would get single-payer health insurance through Congress. Right now, as we speak, there are 2,000 lobbyists who lobby Congress for the drug industry, health insurance industry, and hospital chains. There isn't one full-time person lobbying for what most Americans, according to the polls, and most doctors and nurses want, which is full Medicare for everyone, with free choice of doctor and hospital, and incredible efficiencies. Uh, And that's really the story. Pick your own cause, prison reform. Uh, Changing this boomeranging uh, war on drugs to more rational uh, policymaking. Public transit, instead of pouring all this money into the wars overseas, even getting into the Iraq War could have been stopped. Because in the six months before the Iraq War, when Bush was beating the false drums and phony uh, 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 rationales, like uh, having weapons of mass destruction, all, all the pretense and the lies. False pretense. There were over 400 retired generals, admirals, colonels, ex ambassadors, ex national security types, including two of the leading advisors to uh, the first George Bush, uh, Brent Scowcroft and Jim Baker. They all had spoken out against the war. They wrote editorials, letters to the editors, signed petitions, etc., and were interviewed. But no one organized them into a, a fast moving, powerful influence and got the mass media, and got them up on Capitol Hill with hearings. Now, if George Soros was against the war, he made $3 billion in, in just 2007, to give you an idea of his fortune. Had he put $100 million to mobilize these patriotic Americans of great experience, uh, we, we, we would have uh, blocked Bush and Cheney from uh, stampeding a compliant media and a passive Congress into this horrific war it's going to cost this country uh, over a trillion dollars, thousands of American soldiers' li- lives, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers sick or injured, as well as a million Iraqi civilians who have died and their country blown apart, and uh, actually uh, uh, causing more al-Qaeda recruiting and more opposition to the United States. Lack of $100 million So that's what we have to start thinking, not uh, soft charity, uh, which is good. Soup kitchens are important, but dealing with food safety and why people have to go hungry in this country, the richest country in the world, is what I call social justice movements. That's, uh, That's what this book, Only the Super Rich Can Save Us, is all about. And that's really a quote from a grandmother so grateful, Warren Buffett, when he took down trucks after Katrina. Uh, And no one was helping all these families uh, who had fled New Orleans and were on the side of highways. He took down necessary supplies and public health workers, and as he was going up and down distributing them, uh, a grandmother was so uh, grateful that her grandchildren were getting food and water and shelter, she grabs his hands and says, only the super-rich can save us. And that haunts him all the way back on the highway to Omaha, Nebraska, where he lives. And that was in September 2005. And that's when he thought of uh, bringing these 17 super-rich people that he carefully selected to that mountaintop hotel in Maui.
0: Hmm. You're familiar with, uh, thank you for that overview. I appreciate it, Ralph. You're familiar with the uh, enclave that occurs every year in the August, I believe it is, out in, um, I think it's Utah, uh, with the investor, Mr. Allen, and he brings together about twenty five to forty of the most powerful people in the world media moguls and and bill gates and more buff they all attend yeah but they're looking at how they can work and at, um, at forming a world that they believe is important and that they want and yet it's the policy makers and those people they hire who are the opinion leaders that dictate the way we go I'm thinking if they ever had you to come and do a lecture there or to you to give it some talking points they had not even considered relevant about making capitalism work for all people, not just themselves, because if you speak with these people one-on-one, and I've spoken with quite a few wealthy and powerful people one-on-one, it's amazing that they will agree with almost everything you're saying. It's just that the corporations they run – don't act that way so how do you how do you take people who have a a personal uh, openness of wanting clean air they don't want dirty air they don't want dirty water they don't want their kids eating pesticides if they know they're dangerous on their food uh, they don't want antibiotics uh, in their food if they can help it and yet the very policies that their corporations or their investments of uh, put money into end up creating that how do you how do you get this disconnect to stops? So they pay attention yeah. to what's relevant.
1: Well, that's why I selected them in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, they have uh, a good many of them are retired. They have a different re- perspective. They want to leave something behind, and their better natures come out because they're not uh, the CEOs. They take on the CEOs in a Titanic battle in the middle of the year. Uh, they, uh, and that's what we have to really uh, focus on, people in their advanced age who have more wisdom, they don't want to pile up more money, they know exactly where the warts and vulnerabilities are of these giant corporations because they were successful in business themselves, Uh, and they take them on. And they take them on knowing they couldn't do it without uh, organizing communities all over the country. They know they couldn't do it without organizing Congress watchdog groups or starting People's Chamber of Commerce. Or buying into a subeconomy, uh, buying—they—they they bought in this book, uh, you know, a bank, an insurance company, a uh, auto dealership, uh, a dry cleaning establishment, a bill collectors uh, agency—to get inside the belly of these business establishments and show them best practices, but also to get uh, intelligence uh, from them as to how these uh, trade associations were going to counterattack the the seventeen. Uh, uh, good, super-rich guys who call themselves meteorists. So answer your question, it really is not likely to come from active CEOs uh, who have all kinds of compromises, even the better ones, uh, who have all kinds of compromises, not the least of which uh, they'd have to engage in a, in a uh, pitch battle with other CEOs who are very reactionary, uh, and it would be very destabilizing. So we're looking at people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, and I've met a lot of these people, and I've talked to a lot of them. And it's amazing, Gary, a lot of these super-rich in that advanced age, I've never seen them so discouraged about the future of this country and the world. Oh. And, uh, you know, they're sitting on $3, $6, 8000000000 billion, and they're discouraged. So that they need a horizon. They need a, a vision of what can be, just like regular people uh, need a uh, lift in terms of their expectations about what can be. And this book provides uh, that kind of horizon, that kind of practical reality, uh, given the predicate of billions of dollars coming in on the side of the people. It's sort of dramatic. Warren Beatty, uh, in this book, runs against uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger for governor of California. And I gave him, a, uh, I gave him the book early, and, uh, and I said, what do you think of this, Warren? And he said he thought it would make a good movie because it is really quite dramatic. You know, this is not a Robin Hood-type tale. Uh, this is basically uh, the older super-rich taking on the entrenched super-rich, and <laughs> that generates a whole different aura of drama. And uh, well, people who have what... read this book have told me they've never had any kind of dramatic collision of power like that in their lives. Well, I'll tell it's you usually what... the masses rising up, the workers, the peasants. This is a top-down, bottom-up, very, very uh, astute strategies, tactics, lightning timing, uh, and getting uh, under the belly of the corporate beast, so to speak, and then turning it on Congress. And they start a clean elections party where they challenge the the veteran chairs of the House and Senate, powerful committees who have never seen a challenger. In, in decades. So th- that's also a very good learning process for people back home who read this book.
0: You know, there was a billionaire who ran for president based upon cleaning up a lot of the politics. Uh, remember that gentleman yeah. down in Texas? And look,
1: he got 19 million votes, and Ross Perot. Ross Perot. And I that shows you what money can do, you see. In fact, if he didn't drop out and then drop back in, which cost him, he might have done more than 19 million votes so it really makes my point point. Uh, and he did do some you know grassroot mobilizations called the reform party uh, but this is much more sophisticated much more uh, uh, much more choreographed in detail
0: what what my last comment and then your response is there two things that uh, rung really clear for me on this If you look at some of the most powerful people in American history, they have shown the power towards the people even though they exploited those same people making their power after they retired. Andrew Carnegie was probably at one of the top of those, but there's also Swearingen, Hill, uh, Rockefeller. A lot of them exploited then either through guilt or contemplation or some catharsis. They turned around and wanted to do good, but they never worked together as you're suggesting. And my last point I'd like you to comment on is I've, I have programs on health nutrition on PBS stations, 19 thus far. And one of the cities that airs them all the time is in West Palm Beach. And they had a meet and greet for me down there about two years ago. And what I was amazed by is how many people who I had heard their names uh, but uh, when they were active, but now they're retired. And you see them just as regular people but they're all concerned about what's not happening today. You're absolutely r- hitting this right on the head. And I started thinking to myself, gee whiz, what if all these retired, former top people, and including some one guy, even uh, one of the major tobacco industries, who said it's terrible what's he- happened to America's health. We don't do any prevention. I wish we had a campaign to get a Surgeon General and get a U- U.S. Health, public health official so cared about yeah. people's health. And I'm thinking, well, gee whiz, why don't someone... Uh, someone see that this could be organized. Now, there is just a, an enormous amount of power, enormous amount of people that the phone never rings unless someone wants them to come to a charity and write a check, but otherwise they're out of the loop. And they don't like that necessarily. They don't miss the day-to-day uh, work, but they miss having a more active role and people seeking their advice, which they rarely do. Your thoughts right. on the fact that we have an enormous quantity of people who are at a stage where they're willing to give back.
1: You're right, and and your points are well taken. Let me respond to them. Number one, a lot of enlightened, older, super-rich people in this country have persuaded themselves that they don't have any power left, and this book disproves that. They actually, in their 70s, 80s, 90s, think that nobody's going to listen to them, Uh, they're considered has-beens, it's over, but (laughs) you'll see how these 17 answer that kind of, Uh, passive attitude. Uh, Namely, they do have enormous power with their money and their contacts and their determination and the ability to recruit first-rate, dynamic organizers from the community up to Washington, D.C. The second point is interesting is uh, historically rich people, centuries ago, gave money heavily to their churches and to monasteries. and then, about 110 years ago, as you alluded, the secular foundations for charity started being built. Carnegie built libraries, Rockefeller, and other foundations. I'm saying that it's now time for the third stage. It's time now for big money, enlightened money of these older people, and they got some of their friends to pitch in too. Um, money brings money, um, and that that it goes into power collisions. It goes into shift of power from the few to the many. Uh, The lack of well-distributed power politically and economically in this country is the cause of so many of our problems. When the few have so much power over the many, obviously history teaches us they make decisions contrary to the interests of the many and in consonant with the privileges of the few. And that leads to Wall Street collapse, speculation, greed, corporate crime, uh, you name it delayed uh, public investments, uh, lack of access to justice by regular people for their grievances. Uh, All the people who are dying in this country, 45,000 is the latest estimate because they can't afford health insurance to get treatment. Imagine, as many as die on the highways, 45,000, that's in a a brand-new article by two Harvard uh, researchers, Harvard Medical School researchers in the Journal of Public uh, Health, who you may have on your program. Anyway, it's this third stage the willingness to engage in what George Soros called political political philanthropy and I would add civic philanthropy two tracks mobilize the citizenry and clean up the politics and that, that's what we need to focus on. we we we're seeing enormous contributions by the elderly super rich uh, almost every day there's a newspaper report they've given to a medical school you know, like Ken Langone uh, gave $500 million to New York University Medical School. Or you have uh, Warren Buffett giving $30 billion in stages to the Gates Foundation that deals with infectious diseases. We now have to deal with uh, the challenge of getting these people, and I hope they'll have some conferences and start just discussing the contents of this book, Only Super Rich Can Save Us, that the super rich will, will come together with people who are experienced in civic justice and transformation of societies into more just uh, uh, results, and really work this out. Because everyone has their favorite cause, and uh, more money behind this cause, not in charity, but in political and civic mobilization, uh, to, uh, to get the results done uh, can uh, be an astounding revelation. Uh, there are some precedents here rich families helped accelerate the civil rights movement in the fifties and sixties like the stern family in new orleans the curry family in virginia that's not generally known in the nineteenth century there were proper young bostonians who funded uh, proper bostonians rather who funded the abolition movement against slavery or the women's suffrage movement so there is a some precedent. But I want to see now where we have so many billionaires in their advanced age, I want to see this taken to a new level. And I hope thousands of people will read this book, give it as gifts to their students, their children, get it in libraries by calling up libraries to order it. Uh, Because this book is, is a launching pad for a new way to look at our country, a new way to invigorate our democracy, a new way to tap in to thousands of super-rich people in their elderly years who are beginning to move from success to what they would call significance.
0: I appreciate, once again, the work you've done on this. It's it's exactly what we need to focus, refocus our attention. Ralph Nader, thank you very much for sharing this with us. We look forward to reading Only the Super-Rich Can Save Us and to pass that information on, get it up on blogs. All the best to you on this Thank you,
1: effort. Gary. And the website for people's suggestions and ideas is onlythesuperrich.org. Onlythesuperrich.org. Thank you, Gary. Noel, thank you for your good work and your, your vibrant listeners.
0: All the best to you.